Welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of The Exchange, a coffee podcast where coffee people talk to coffee people about coffee and or things coffee adjacent. I'm Mike Ferguson. For this episode, we'll be talking about coffee origin issues. Note that our guest is calling all the way from Guatemala, and at times you can hear the gremlins playing jump rope with the telephone lines, so I apologize if the sound quality is a little challenging here and there. Today, our guest is... Byron Holcomb. My first job in coffee was that of a Peace Corps volunteer in the Dominican Republic. I was there for two years uh, working in a remote community called Los Frios. From there, I came back to the U.S. where I kind of realized that I wanted to work in coffee for as a career. And so I got a job at Batdorf and Bronson, uh, sweeping the floor as, as, as it was offered to me in the, as a production assistant. Later worked in retail, later became a roasted bean sales rep for Counterculture Coffee. And then from there, I went on to do some consulting for a little while. And in 2007, I purchased my own little coffee farm in the Dominican Republic, uh, five hectares where I was a Peace Corps volunteer. And so I knew the community, I knew the, the region wanted to bring specialty coffee to that region. And kind of kept it going as a, as a cell phone farmer from, from the U.S. Learned a lot about processing through that experience. And then I became a coffee buyer at Dallas Brothers Coffee in New York City from 2010, I believe, to 2013. In 2013, I was, I was given the opportunity to move to Brazil and run two medium-sized specialty farms for a multinational. That company today is known as Noble Tree Coffee in New York City. And then in 2019, I moved to become the regional specialty manager for Olam in Guatemala. I'm based in Guatemala, and I work with a few different origins that we have operations in, like Mexico, Honduras, Peru, and Colombia, to support the specialty business. And that's what you're doing now? And that's what I do now, yeah. That's, I'm currently in Guatemala City. And so how long, how long in coffee total? So if you count my peaceful years, um, when I did work with, you know, agroforestry stuff and, you know, tree nurseries with avocado and coffee and, and lime, that was 2003. And so 2003 until now. So I guess that's, that's five few years. Yeah. Coming up on 20. That's crazy. Yeah. So in your um, current role, just to get some idea of what you do, what's the day in the life like for you these days? It's nice because every day is different. Um, usually I get up pretty early because my daughter goes to school at 6.30, so we have to get her on the bus. But from there, it's usually a combination of either field trips or days in the office with lots of meetings and follow-ups and uh, where I kind of have two focuses. One is, of course, trading coffee. So if, you know, Todd Mackey calls me and says, hey, Byron, I want a container of Jabiru or, you know, or, hey, what, what's up in Mexico right now? I want this kind of supply. And so there's coffee trading. So that's kind of a constant, you know, back and forth, uh, negotiating with uh, traders and farmers. And then the other part is kind of more the administrative side of managing um, operations and, and, and different origins as, as well as Guatemala. And so that's, that's where you get lots of meetings and, and lots of spreadsheets and lots of reports to review. There's definitely time in the field and that's always nice to go out and visit farms and visit our own sharing mill in Ayarsa, visit our operations in Huawei you know, not every day, but, you know, definitely part of, part of what I do. Um, and then, it, you know, outside of work, I, I ride my bike a lot and I you know my wife and daughter are here and we have pretty a normal family life with friends and that's about it. Yeah, there's, 
there's some things that you get to do that might be unique compared to other specialty coffee managers. Uh, there's some things around innovation um, in processing. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And with some of the kind of the, the approach from from Olam to really try to find like find opportunities for 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 adding flavor for adding value to a coffee, we've we've done a lot with innovation. And so we have this incredible food scientist named Siva. Um, and he, he and I have collaborated quite a bit to create the processing, uh, the processing PDF, the, the kind of the flow chart that classifies all the different types of processing into one document. In Mexico, we've done the starter culture. We've improved cup quality in both washed and natural processed coffees. Those are really exciting because you're taking a pretty, you could say normal coffee, kind of a normal SHG Mexico, and, and then you've made it a really kind of fantastic specialty offer. Um, also in Peru, we're working on cascara, and so some of that is is starting to, to yield fruit, as you could say. I mean, those, those products are coming to market now as well. And then um, here in Guatemala, I, I wouldn't, you could call it innovation, but you know, it's when I first came here in 2019, when, when, we, when we saw that we had a cherry mill and we wanted to do some specialty processes, we started doing naturals and honeys and now we're doing carbonic maceration here in Guatemala. And, and, you know, the farmers and the people around me said, you can't do that. This is Guatemala. You can't put that, that process doesn't work. <laughs> and then, you know, three or four years later, we're selling several containers of it and it's really good coffee and, and it's, and it's working. Um, and so innovation has been, I kind of, for me, it's, I would, I'd almost call it a passion project. You know, I would, I would do that if it wasn't even part of my job because it's just really exciting to, to add value, add flavor to, to a coffee. For uh, some of our listeners who are new to coffee, um, just starting out, could you explain what cascara is? Sure. Cascara is when you, so you take a coffee cherry, you know, as you know, it's the, the, the cherry on a tree, uh, the bean is inside it. And so when you depulp that, You've removed the skin and a little bit of fruit kind of goes with the skin when you depulp it to make a washed coffee. And so when you've separated that bean from the cherry skin, that cherry skin in Spanish is called cascara. And so that skin or peel, when you dry it properly, um, you can make tea out of it. And that's actually it's kind of one of the original coffee products from Yemen is they actually, and I think to, today, if I'm not mistaken, they call it kirsch. Kirscher, Kirsch, I'm not exactly sure of the name, um, but they still drink it, you know, and it's, a, and it's kind of a tannic, uh, caffeinated uh, tea beverage that you can make from coffee that's, that's mm. not coffee. What are some of the other things we're doing with the cascara? Uh, I know tea is sort of the traditional use. There's tea, there's cascara flour, there's um, other kind of energetic extracts from it. I mean, it, one of the, you know, especially for those people who are new to coffee, you know, caffeine is, you know, we, of course, in small doses, drink it and, and, and enjoy the benefits of being able to wake up in the morning. Um, but for an insect, that's a pretty kind of bitter, you know, poison. Um, and so I think the, there's, from that perspective, the whole coffee tree has a lot of potential. I mean, you can make tea out of the leaves. I remember, um, from my, my coffee farmer friends in the Dominican Republic when they, when they would tell me they would go out and travel to visit their farm and they would forget the coffee. They would actually make coffee tea out of the leaves of the tree so they wouldn't have a headache in the morning. 
it's uh, exciting because just in terms of net waste, um, finding uses for the cascara cuts down so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also, like, I mean, if you look at, if you look at the, the carbon footprint of coffee, um, a large percentage of that carbon footprint, um, probably 30%, maybe more, is actually from the residue, uh, crop residue management. And so that you're managing your, your waste products, your waste water, your, your cascara. And so if we can find uses for that, it, it has a kind of a, kind of an amplifying effect in the sense that you've decreased the carbon footprint of the coffee, you've added value to that coffee, and you've also decreased the waste. So bigger picture, um, first on Guatemala, which is your primary concern, you're involved with other origins as well. What are some of the um, biggest challenges that you're seeing for Guatemala specifically, uh, which is a favorite specialty origin for a lot of roasters, but uh, other origins as well in general throughout Central and South America? And then some of the success stories, what things are working right now? The biggest concern that, or the biggest challenge you could say that both Guatemala and especially Guatemala and Honduras are facing is, is basically migration. There's, there's fewer pickers, um, and coffee is incredibly labor intensive, right? It's not the kind of thing where it's, you know, you visit the farm a couple times a year and you go in there and pick it. No, it's like you have to do the pruning, you have to do the weeding, you have to fertilize, you have to pick. And the biggest impact that we see during the crop year or the crop cycle is during harvest, you need a ton of pickers, like lots and lots and lots of people, people to pick coffee well. And this last crop, what we've seen is that there are fewer pickers, right? A lot of people have, are just not there. Um, and so these pickers have, uh, so the farm owners are having to do more with less people. Uh, I've heard of coffee farms not being even able to finish their harvest because they just couldn't get people to the trees in time. That's a, that's a pretty, that's a pretty big challenge. I mean, the other challenge that I hear and, and see in the field is just fertilizer cost increase. You know, it's, it's gone up a hundred percent, you know, it's twofold. Yeah. And so again, coffee's a, coffee's an agricultural crop, no food, no, no, no harvest. Right. And so if you really start to pull back on, on your fertilizer applications, because it's so much more expensive now, you know, you might not see it immediately, but over the next couple of years, you'll see a pretty drastic decrease in your production. Mm -hmm. And so those are the two, like, kind of, it's, it's not a perfect storm quite yet, but it's getting there, you know, lack of labor. And, and fertilizer cost increase are some of the, those are the biggest cost elements in your cost of production. It's, it's tough. It's, these, are, these are definitely choppy waters, I would say. Sort of on the other side of the coin, um, success stories maybe uh, in the midst of all these challenges? For sure. I think, you know, some of the success stories are, are, are things like, you know, on the other side of that labor equation, um, if you look at who is now running the farm, a lot of these are women, women who have, you know, their husbands have left and gone to the U.S. And the women are there producing coffee and they're part of the program called Cacadela. So this is a regional LATAM product that started in Brazil and now we've brought it to the whole region. And so we have women producers who are producing fine coffee, receiving trainings from us. And then, you know, some of the best lots of those are being sold to, you know, people like you in the U.S. and, and others that are, uh, keen to support the program. And so that's definitely, I think, a huge success story. Um, the other is some of these kind of digital initiatives that we've, we've been rolling out, um, especially in Guatemala, called Olam Direct, which is where we're able to have full farmer traceability in regions where that's usually pretty difficult. Yeah. 
And so if you look at a region like Wewetenango, lots of smallholders selling in dry parchment, it's hard to find, you know, really fantastic lots that are farmer traceable. And yet we're able to offer, you know, tiny lots like uh, uh, Jorge Luis Sanchez lot that we just sold to, to your team. Like, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's a beautiful coffee. It comes from a small region called Santa Barbara in Wewetenango. It's not very well known. He's a, he has this incredible system where he raises like, where he, uh, he produces peach as kind of the shade tree and then coffee mm-hmm. below it. And so he's always harvesting one or the other. It's really, and it's through programs like Olam Direct that we can discover these kind of, these, these micro lots and these, that are both really tasty and really exciting. Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by Olam Direct. Can you talk about what Olam Direct looks like on the ground, just logistically in very practical terms, what that program looks like? For a farmer, they have their needs when, when, when the harvest comes in, you know, they've, they've been spending money and investing in their crop the whole year. And maybe it's not their only product, right? Maybe they have, um, broccoli or cabbage, you know, especially in way where regions that, you know, the farmer can do both like a, like cabbage or broccoli or, or sweet peas or snow peas and coffee. But, you know, in the coffee crop, they've been investing all year long and then the harvest comes in and they need to sell it. Right. And so getting, you know, you want a healthy market, you want the farmer to have options, but you also want the farmer to have a certain level of market intelligence. Right. And so that market intelligence comes from a real price from a real buyer, right? Not just these intermediaries who happen to have a pickup truck and are paying the same price for all different, for the same, for different qualities and trying to blend coffee to, to make their money, you know, with all on direct you know, the, it's, it's, the, it's a simple system, right? And so we have small uh, farmers who are like leaders in their communities buying coffee from their neighbors and it's completely price transparent. And I think for me, that's one of the most powerful elements. So the small farmer who is this guy's neighbor gets to see the price as well as the guy who's buying the coffee. So he's kind of like our, our mini kind of receiving agent. And so he'll receive the coffee in his house when he has, I don't know, a truckload or a pickup load, he'll deliver it to us. We double check the quality and we provide the capital. We provide the digital infrastructure. We, we provide the tool so that farmer who's receiving the coffee. We call him the farmer leader. He actually does the, the analysis on the coffee. And if the coffee is better than, than expected, then the farmer immediately gets a premium paid to him or her. And so it's, and so it's, a, it's an immediate feedback loop. It's, you know, farmer prices, that are real because I think you know when you, when you spend a lot of time at Origin and you tell a farmer like, "Hey, the fee market is two thirty, he says, "What does that mean to me? I don't buy in dollars. You know, I, I buy my food in I, I buy my food in quetzales or, or Colombian pesos or Mexican pesos. Mm-hmm. You know, and so he needs to know what that what that's relevant to him in, and he doesn't buy it. You know, or he doesn't sell something to the to the board in New York, right? So he it's a it's a fee market plus a differential, plus quality involved. Um, and so when he receives every single morning a price for his coffee or her coffee, that's really empowering. It's like, oh, okay, you know, I like the price today. I'll sell. I don't like the price today. I'm going to wait. I mean, that's, that's, that's really cool. At the level of the farmer, that transparency happens with smartphones, right? Correct. But it doesn't have to be a smart, like the farmer leader has to have a smartphone right. because he has, okay. to have, he has to have that, the all on direct app and he has to upload all of the, the details of the farmer, of the, of the quality. But yeah. the farmer, we, you know, the, the term here we use for the little cell phones, like a little old Nokia, you know, that don't have like a, they're not smartphones. They right. call them frijolitos. 
which means like little beans, because they look like, you know, little, little beans, right? And so those phones receive text messages in, you know, all over the country. And so we send out thousands of text messages a day during harvest, giving prices out to everybody, right? And so I think that's a pretty, um, so you don't have to have a smartphone, right? Right. Yeah. Sort of beyond coffee, coffee quality, what are some of the origin issues that you're either observing or involved with that don't necessarily have anything to do directly with the physical coffee itself, but that you and or us as an organization are involved with? Sure. Um, I, get, I get very involved in sustainability efforts. In Guatemala, I'm heavily involved with a few different projects. Uh, one is the reduction of carbon, carbon footprint of the coffee mm-hmm. through doing soil analyses and providing fertilizer to farmers. There's a water reduction project with uh, larger farmers to reduce the water consumption in their wet mills, where we've shown up to like 80% reduction in, in the water usage, which is pretty significant. And then there's also, you know, we also have some very large kind of multi-year projects. Uh, one of them is called MOCA, which is a combination of funding from USDA and TechnoServe and MOCA. And we're one of their bigger partners here in Guatemala and Huehuetenango, providing training to over um, almost 5,000 farmers in a three-year cycle, right? And so it's like mm-hmm. training literally from like how you plant the seed to how you pick the coffee to how you wash the coffee to how you treat your farm like a little business. How do you, you know, how do you prune the coffee when it's that time comes? That's, you know, that's pretty powerful to see, you know, when you have 18 agronomists in the field every single day giving out trainings. The, the amount of trainings and support we can give to farmers is, is pretty incredible. And then there's also a lot of small projects that I end up doing, um, you know, through, through support from some of our, some of our specialty offices, like the ones in Europe, like you guys in the U.S. We've, we've done some really cool projects, you know, we, we, lots of small pilots, I would say, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes that means, um, a methanogenic processing, uh, bladder to, to produce methane, uh, and also process some of the wastewater in our cherry mill, which has been very successful. We have done water filter distribution in Atiklan for you know the, the, the that coffee chochu how which um, the U.S. the U.S. team sells quite a bit of. We were able to take some of the uh, we were able to support that community and, and provide some water filters and also saplings. So we we bought the seeds and we bought the bags and then they did the manual labor on kind of filling the bags and preparing the saplings. There's just lots of these really small, very cool projects that we're using uh, to try to have a, like a very targeted impact. You know, on Friday, we're going to a, a school in Ayarsa near our cherry mill mm-hmm. where we can, um, where we're inaugurating a kitchen, right? So this, this school had, a, had expressed the need to us that they want a better kitchen because with 330 students and this tiny little footprint, I mean, this, this kitchen was like, there's no way you could prepare food for 330 students in this kitchen. And so they asked for, they, they made a budget. The fathers, the, the parents of the kids did all the labor, 100% of the labor, all of the cement mixing, the pouring, the, you know, tying up the, the rebar, everything. And then um, we had a roaster partner who wanted to fund it. And so he supported the kitchen, right? Yeah. And so on Friday, uh, they've invited us to go have the first meal in the kitchen, right? And, and we're providing a much better, environment for these kids to have good food I mean, mm-hmm. that's just super cool and so like right. I, I get those for me are like some of these like different passion projects that are 
that have very targeted impact um, and sustainability, but we also have a huge project, like I said, the three-year program with Mocha. A lot of our listeners are, uh, as I said, new coffee buyers. Uh, a lot of them have never been to Origin, but hope to go one day. What's some advice you have to a green coffee buyer slash roaster who's on their first trip to Origin? Great question. And, and honestly, like I've had a lot of visitors over the years in Origin. Between my time in Brazil, I was a coffee buyer, so I've been kind of that coffee buyer visiting Origin and also here in Guatemala and in other countries. Um, my advice for the first-time buyer is like, you are there to learn. You are there not to show what you know, but you're there to understand that coffee in that context. Every, every coffee origin is its own, um, is its own island. As I, I like to say it's its own island. And then when I say that, I mean it's, it's its own language. It's in terms of how they talk about coffee. It's its own challenges in terms of labor, in terms of what are the different diseases that are on the, on the affecting the coffee, it, the climate, um, how that coffee is traded. And so you're, you're, I mean, you're there to try to understand that coffee in that context. And you can yeah. only do that if you show up and start asking a lot of questions and questions that you probably know the answer to. I always right. tell first time buyers, I'm like, yeah, you know what fermented coffee is, but ask them how they ferment, you know, ask them how they dry their coffee. Yeah. You can see the coffee in the patio, but like ask them, what is their process? How do they wash the coffee? How do they get it clean? How do they, how do they transport it? You know, is, is it mule? Is it a truck? Is it yeah. on their back? I mean, I've seen, I've seen, I've, we've seen everything. Sometimes it's a tractor. Sometimes it's a mule. Sometimes it's on somebody's back. Sometimes um, it's on a motorcycle. I mean, <laughs> you know, the coffee moves in all kinds of ways. And so yeah. it's, as, your, as your first time buyer, it's, it's really important just to ask a ton of questions. You're, you're not there to tell a farmer how to, how to farm coffee. You're there to, yeah. to, to ask those questions and, and, and build that relationship, right? Yeah. I, I think whether it's your first time at Origin or your 15th time or your 50th time, you can't lose by approaching that trip with a beginner's mind. I completely agree. You've been around and observing the coffee industry now for almost 20 years. When it comes to green coffee buyers, what are some of the things that successful green coffee buyers have in common? Good question. I mean, how do you define a successful green coffee buyer? <laughs> you know, that's, that's a great question. I think... What I see in common in, in the, in the companies and in the green buyers that, that, that I've met that kind of like, that do kind of like impress me or I can see that that company has been around for, you know, as long as I have in coffee or something, that they're all about the numbers, right? You know, they know exactly how many bags of what quality they need to buy. And they're very disciplined. Mm -hmm. I think part, I mean, part like, I think part one is, you know, they know their numbers. Part two right. is they're disciplined and they're buying, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I, I need to buy a microlot. Oh, this microlot, 15 bags. Oh, it's beautiful. I love it. But you only need 10. Right. So don't buy 15, mm -hmm. you know? And so you have to have that discipline to be like, you know, it's, it's not a microlot when it's been sitting in my inventory for two years because I couldn't sell it. Mm -hmm. So like, maybe I only need to buy 10. And so it's like, it's that discipline and knowing your numbers is, 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 is what I see the separating some of these kind of more successful companies and green buyers than the people who are kind of maybe not quite as uh, number savvy and, and they just show up and kind of follow their heart because it, it, it's a business at the end of the day. Right. You got to follow, you got to, you got to know where you got to know your numbers, you know? Yeah. I, not to answer my own question, but 
uh, the most successful green buyers that I know are just as comfortable with a spreadsheet as they are at the cupping table. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing is that I tend to find is when green coffee is pulling up to the dock, no matter how long they've been a buyer or a roaster, they're still excited to go meet that coffee on the dock. Um, if you're so burnt out that you're not interested in what's coming in, um, it might be time to, uh, to refresh. Yes. Yeah. I mean, any kind of business, like any kind of business, and I, and I think coffee in particular, it, it's a marathon. Generally speaking, you could see like three or four years of bad years for the farmer with a low seed market. And now you're seeing better years for the farmer with a higher seed market. Of course, challenges with labor and fertilizer. But these are hard years for a roaster. I mean, I remember in 2010 when I became a coffee buyer, the first purchase I made was a seed market level of 168. Yeah. And then the market rallied to 280, 290, it even mm-hmm. broke three dollars. Yeah. And when you're a roaster and you're looking at your numbers and your spreadsheet, you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know if we can make it. And so you, so again, that's just like you said, you've got to be disciplined, but you've also got to keep the. I mean, it's, it's a meaningful, it's a meaningful business. Yeah. I mean, you're dealing with some of the most remote, most you know, and sometimes even the poorest and you know difficult places to reach in the world, and you're able to serve their, their product. And that's, right. just, that's just super cool. Okay, so as we're uh, coming to a close, my last question is if you could go back in time to 2003 and talk to uh, Byron who's just started, uh, was it sweeping uh, sweeping the floor at Batdorf and Bronson, let's say, um, what would be your advice uh, to that Byron? I, I don't know. That's a, good, that's a really good question. Um, I, I, I hate to go back and just repeat what I just said, but I think it's, it's, it's again kind of a focus on the numbers. Mm-hmm. And I think the only other thing I would kind of focus on, and, and this, this is going to, this might sound kind of dry and stale, but the focus on the sales. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, really what, what's going to keep any kind of business going is, is focusing on the sales. And I think, you know, when I go, when I look back at my roaster days and I see that, you know, we have the days that you're, you know, you're waking up at 4.30 in the morning and you're getting to the roastery at 5.30 and you're weighing green and roasting 18, 20, 25 batches. Like, okay, you're, you know, you're using the capacity in your roaster. Mm-hmm. But if you all of a sudden start having days where you're like, okay, I can roll in at seven. I don't have to do very many roasts today. Um, you need to start looking at your sales. Mm-hmm. Cause it's like, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's in, 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 in a lot of ways, it's kind of easy to buy coffee. You can get coffee in your warehouse. But getting it out is the point. You right. know? When you can turn it over and 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 you know give your employees you know health insurance and support them and and you know support your farmers more. That's not coming from really the buying side. Right. Of course, that's important. But you've got to sell it. And I would say I would go back to the you know to the buyer in twenty years ago and say, Hey, man, you need to you need to know how to sell. Yeah. And and, and that's really what keeps everything afloat. It's it's not. It's not the cost going out; it's the invoices that you're that you're sending out and collecting. Yeah, coffee's like anything else: production minus sales equals scrap. <laughs> exactly, and, and and there's a lot of scrap in coffee. I mean, how much you know roasters that are committed to the quality? I mean, how many hundreds of pounds are, are they turning out at the end of you know on Sunday when when it timed out? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of scrap, and so there's there's opportunities there to, to optimize. Um, but you can't optimize more than, than, than great sales and great service and, and, what, and, and serving your customers. I mean, you don't get sales just by like knocking on doors and, and being obnoxious. You get it by serving your customers. Right. And I think that's the, 
That's the trick is know your customers, serve your customers, make those sales and deliver on it. You know, it's no different for me, you know, as a, as a, as a trader sitting at origin and, and trying to support both the farmers, but also my clients, you know, I, I, I try to provide service to both. Well, Byron, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit with us today. Sure thing, Mike. Great talking to you as always. Okay. Take care. Cheers. You've been listening to The Exchange, coming to you from our coffee podcast studio in beautiful downtown Providence, Rhode Island. The Exchange is produced and edited by me, Mike Ferguson. Our opening theme was A Cup of Coffee and a Piece of Pie by the Ribeye Brothers. Our closing theme is Coffee Morning by Olga Scotland. All music is used under Creative Commons. You can reach us now using electronic mail on a computer at coffeetheexchange at gmail.com. And now, your postscript. My name is... Ding dong. I work in the wine industry and I have four legs. <laughs>